I remember working the 11 to 7, the, the midnight shift, graveyard shift as we would sometimes call it, at night in the nursing home when I was in high school. I, I, uh, I was a village student, so we would have to drive, or my, my dad would drive us to work at that late hour. And I remember how envious I would be as we rode along on, on the way to work at the homes that were dark or that had just maybe one or two lights on, but, but you knew they were in bed or getting ready to go to bed. To think that everyone was slipping into bed for a welcome, welcome slumber made the drive into the dark night all the more arduous. Even while at the nursing home serving there at those, in those late or early morning hours, walking the length of those dimly lit halls, that fluorescent lighting, check on the sleeping residents, it was challenging as I was required, you hear me now, I was required to persistently refuse sleep's beckoning call. I was young, but I was tired. It's a curious thing when you think that amidst all the important people and events of the world, amidst the chaos and the fame of governments and business and entertainment, that most of the world still sleeps during those hours of night. And I don't know, if you just turn your head a little bit, doesn't that make you kind of curious? I mean, the president and the Congress. And... Yet for those who refuse to work, I refuse for uh, refuse whether for work or worry's sake. They often long, don't they, for that sleep, sweet rest. God established. Now, don't go to sleep on me. <laughs> God established in the very creation week a rest that is set to repeat itself every seventh day. And just as the creation order goes about its regular routine with the sun going up and down and the moon likewise, so the Sabbath resurfaces at the end of each week, a, a haven in which the creation may find sweet rest through the communion with the divine. Yet many refuse this perhaps, um, this re sweet rest, perhaps unknowingly, and yet are perplexed by the weariness that such neglect leaves with their soul. But for those who have entered into that rest, the respite is splendid and refreshing, like a, like a cool drink amidst a dry and arid desert. Each week we return to Sabbath to worship, and, and we worship in this place, do we not? It's a habit, you might say, but... Habits are not all bad. For notice what happens when someone gets out of the habit, if you will, from weekly worship together in this place, and you will see a life that begins to slowly spiral amidst the cares of this world. I would especially extend a warning to our young people where the temptations, especially when you leave home, will be great. But don't remember what God established at creation. Sabbath worship was designed by God to be a routine. 
It's etched into the very fabric of time. Why? Because it reminds us of creation and redemption. And it illustrates the story of God. A story that I want to review with you today. Let us pray. The title of the message, by the way, is Come, Find, Rest. Dear Lord, please speak to our hearts. Please remove all distraction. Remove even the thought of the clock. Help us just to to immerse ourselves in your presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wash me, hide me, for we all have come to sit at your feet. Speak to us, young and old, for we know through your Spirit all things are possible. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks, or actually last week, I should say, we looked at the time prophecy surrounding the Exodus. You you know we're in a a series now, uh, The Long Journey Home. And it's a long series because it's a long journey. And we asked the question last week at the dawn of this series, why Egypt before the Exodus? Why Egypt before the Exodus? We also noted that, that both movements, that is the Israelite journey from Egypt to Canaan and the Advent movement in these last days, that both movements began with a time prophecy. To, re- to review briefly, and <laughs> if you didn't quite, I heard several of you say, ah, I got lost. Um, just, just, let's go slow. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.17 that the time between the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Sinai was 430 years. How many years? 430 years, which is corroborated by the fact that Exodus 12:41 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament that was in Christ's day, it says in Exodus 12:41 that Israel's 430 years began or took place both in Canaan and Egypt. We then looked at how in Genesis 15 and verse 13 that Abraham is told that his people will spend 400 years in affliction. So then, we carefully calculated the time in which Isaac was weaned and noted that it was some 28 years after the covenant given that likely a seed of jealousy was placed in that young um, Isaac because Ishmael would have been 17 years old at the time of Isaac's weaning. What did I say? Yeah, Ishmael would have been 17 at Isaac's weaning. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Um, Y'all need to listen like that, right? Um, So, so I thought it was easy, but uh, let's see here. Ishmael was jealous of Isaac. Thank you, Tina. And, and Paul refers to that jealousy, that scoffing, as, as Genesis 21 describes. He, Paul calls that persecution. You can read it there in Galatians 4.29. Why is all that significant? It would appear that the affliction spoken of to Abraham was a direct result. Hear me carefully. Was a direct result of Abraham's failure to trust God. For it came about as a result of trying to have a promised child through Hagar. Thus, we concluded that while God often tests his people, the affliction that God's people go through often need not be as severe as we often make it. 
Nonetheless, God is working to refine his people through affliction for this, that we to be, are to be purified and tested for heaven. Today, I want to invite you to consider with me chapter 1 of Exodus. For, this, for in this, we find a clear glimpse of our story in Exodus 1. Turn there if you haven't already. Exodus chapter 1. And um, you find this story that re reflects a, to a great degree our story is unfolding before us as we'll see. And it's nothing new for God's people. So let's read it. Exodus 1. I'll be reading from the New King James. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful... And increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And grew and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. And therefore, God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. And so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. A key issue in the text is that of trying to manage the rapid growth of Israel. The text explains carefully and repeatedly that it began with the family of Jacob and that there were only 70 at the beginning. For that matter, at the beginning of the 430 years, there were only two, Abraham and Sarah. 
Then it says they multiplied, which is creation language. The word for multiplied here in the text of Exodus 1 is the same word that is found in Genesis 1.21. And as one scholar put it, carries the meaning to swarm. And swarm they did. For God is blessing them. He's multiplying them. For we are reminded very, very clearly with Abraham and Sarah that God is the one who opens and closes wombs. We see then with Jacob when he worked with Laban that God also multiplied the sheep of Jacob but not of Laban. You understand the theme of multiplication, of swarming, of growing is here in Exodus chapter 1. So here we see God multiplying and blessing his people so that they now are a large swarm. Assuming that the timeline that we studied last week and just reviewed moments ago is correct, then chapter 1 is covering, catch this, chapter 1 is covering a time span of roughly 135 years. That is because when you do the math, you realize that Jacob's family moved to Egypt when Jacob was 130, according to the text, which is 215 years from when Abraham received the covenant agreement in Genesis 12 at the age of 75. So, so let me remind you how we, we discovered that. If, if he was 75 in at Genesis chapter 12 when he received the covenant, and that Isaac, um, Abraham had Isaac 25 years after the covenant agreement in Genesis, from Genesis 12. And Isaac was 60 when he had Jacob. So add 25 plus 60 plus 130 and you arrive at 215 years. Which is half of the 200, 430 years that was told to Abraham. And was according to Paul in Galatians. So now we know, based on Exodus 7, 7, that Moses was 80 years old when he went to Pharaoh just prior to the plagues. So, if you subtract 80 from the remaining 215 years that we're left with, you come out with 135 years in which Israel went from 70 in number to a swarm. You say, that's just not possible. You forget who we're dealing with. Right? God, when he blesses, stand back. And he takes a family of 70 and he multiplies them into a swarm like that. That's what the text is bringing out. It's constantly talking about how... How they multiply. Yes, the creation language used here in the text is likely more than just coincidental. For it implies that Pharaoh is, is, is reacting not just against the Israelites, but against the creator himself. Just look at the chapter. Its, its primary focus is on Israel's astounding growth and Pharaoh's anger and retaliation over the blessing. Yes, in a sense, Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist retaliating against the creator of heaven. And as we see in chapter 5, this Antichrist Pharaoh not only retaliates against the created order of God, but also against God's plan of redemption for when Moses asked to get Israel 
um, to let Israel go that, that they may worship, Pharaoh stubbornly refuses for he wishes for Israel to serve him and his people. Pharaoh was more than a kingly figure too, remember. He was also a religious figure as well. He was a blending of religious and secular. You see, Egypt had many gods, but its supreme god was the sun. And quoting Adventist scholar Taylor Bunch, we read, The Egyptians dedicated the first day of the week to their first or chief god, Amon-Ra, the sun. Since the king of Egypt was the chief pontiff of their religion and the high priest of sun worship, he took the dynastic rule of Pharaoh, which is the Hebrew rendering of Pharaoh, the sun. Thus the first day of the week, end quote by the way, thus the first day of the week was dedicated to worshiping the sun god. Sunday back in Egypt was a big deal then too as it was a day for wild pagan worship and celebration. Sun worship was more about worshiping the powers of the sun and the fertility that it delivered than it was than um, the actual sphere itself. The Egyptians called the sun god Ra. The Canaanites called it Baal. The Syrians called it Tammuz. The Moabites called the sun god Baal Peor. The Persians Mithra. Greece called it Apollo. And Rome called it both Apollo and Hercules. You see, sun worship has always permeated the nations and the peoples through history. In its various forms. Sun worship was focused on the worship of reproduction and nature. And thus was part of its seductive appeal, for it involved gross sexual immorality in its worship practices. A.T. Jones, in his book, The Two Republics, writes, quote, Consequently, prostitution was the one chief characteristic of sun worship wherever found. As the association of a female without reference to relationship was the only requirement necessary to worship. The result was the perfect confusion of all relationships among the worshipers, even to the mutual interchange of garments between the sexes. You catch that? Continuing. Married and unmarried females prostituted themselves at the festival of the gods. The two sexes change, catch this, the two sexes change their respective characters and tradition reports that Hercules himself had given an example of this when assuming the vestments and occupation of a female, he subjected himself to the service of the voluptuous Amphele, end quote. I would therefore suggest That the confusion with regards to sexuality that we see today, the promiscuity, the androgyny, the highly sexualized depiction of females in society today is in many ways nothing more than a modern reflection of sun worship. As we see from history, cross-dressing is nothing new. Sun worship encompassed a great deal and its day of worship was Sunday. In a secular online site 
I just came across this. It's called Medium. It's, it's just a place where people share ideas. In a recent article written last year entitled, Sunday is the Day of the Sun and Pagan Worship, Danwell Rees, who I don't know, writes, despite its Christian associations, Sunday has retained some of its pagan roots. For instance, many modern traditions associated with Sunday, such as watching football, right, or hosting a family barbecue, have little to do with Christianity and are more closely related with ancient pagan traditions or celebrations. Continuing, he writes, however, with the rise of mainstream Christianity, Sunday became known as the day of rest and worship for Christians. This tradition was adopted by many European countries, and eventually, Sunday became widely recognized as the day of rest in much of the Western world, end quote. You see, sun worship weighed an impact on the people of God then as it does now. And speaking of the Israelites and their condition in Exodus chapter 5, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets 258, in their bondage, the Israelites had to some extent lost the knowledge of God's law. And they had departed from its precepts. The Sabbath had been generally disregarded. And the exactions of their taskmasters made its observance apparently impossible. But Moses had shown his people that obedience to God was the first condition of deliverance. And the efforts made to restore the observance of the Sabbath had come to the notice of the oppressor. End quote. Now, the Bible alludes to this matter in a several places. Now, follow these sequence of texts very carefully. It's astounding what lies beneath the surface. Notice, Psalm 105, 43 to 45, we read these words. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. So, so the reason catch this, for their deliverance here in verse 45 was that they were to be delivered that they might observe God's law. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 in speaking of the fourth commandment says, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant, Moses writes, may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so it is that God says here in the passage that servants should not have to work on the Sabbath. And thus the text states very clearly that this is why God brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So that they could find rest in his holy Sabbath. God raised up a prophet in Israel named Moses, who came with a message for the people for that time. Exodus 4, 29 to 31 says, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Now notice the response. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked on their affliction... Notice their response. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. Interesting. 
Notice how this message led them to worship. In other words, his efforts to restore Sabbath and worship of the Creator is clear from the text itself. In fact, when Moses approached Pharaoh requesting that the Israelites be given freedom to go and worship their God, you read in Exodus 5 verses 5 and 8 that Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, the text says, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of their people and the officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And, he says, you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. For, Pharaoh says, they are idle. Therefore, they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Indeed, the text is clear, isn't it? Moses was reminding the people of their creator and the Sabbath rest he required of them. And Pharaoh sees this whole Sabbath rest bit as idleness. You follow? Moses was raised up to bring revival and reformation to the people. You see, sun worship and idolatry had affected people, God's people grossly. In fact, Acts 7, 39-42, Stephen's sermon um, that fateful day where Stephen rehearses the history of Israel, he says this, that in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days, which by the way, a calf was associated with sun worship. They made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then notice verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Now Deuteronomy 4 verse 19 tells us what the host of heaven that he gave them up to is all about. It says... And take heed, this is Deuteronomy 4 verse 19. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, wall the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. Yes, with a passive reading, you might have just zoomed right through Exodus 1. But when you look at it carefully in that of chapter 5, you see the signature of God upon his people as illustrated by the Sabbath was under attack. And you find that Sunday worship and all the heavenly hosts and idolatry going with it were seeking to destroy the faith of God's people. But there was always a remnant. Amen? There was always a remnant. In their distress, Patriarchs and Prophets 259, it says, they cried unto the Lord for deliverance from the Egyptian yoke, that they might be freed from the corrupting influence of idolatry. You see, it's alluded to in chapter 1 that Egypt was retaliating against the Creator. And so today we see the, we see the same retaliation. As man turns to evolution, as man turns to Sunday worship, some blindly, mind you, but still swept up, and thus the rest is lost. We, like Israel, are invited, are called out to cling to the one true God and His promise to soon deliver us. 
So we see in Exodus 1 this theme of creation and the, and the God who is blessing his people as they fulfill the creation mandate to multiply and fill the earth. And Pharaoh come, becomes fearful of their growth. As verses 11 and 12 say, they afflicted them more, but that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied or thrived or swarmed. We can be thankful for affliction for it was a, it is a time, it was a time of encouraging growth in the people of Israel. And it is the same for us. I mean, you ever grow a tomato plant, right? Maybe not. Um, But when you grow a tomato plant indoors early for spring uh, planting outside, you know that you can't just set it down there in the basement under a grow light and leave it alone. Or maybe you're going to find out. Um, If you do that and don't touch it, don't um, cause it to have to blow in the wind, put a fan on it or something. But, But usually when you're hardening it off, as they say, you take those plants and you gently rub your hands over their leaves. Why? Because if you don't afflict that tomato plant, it will be so overwhelmed with the affliction of the harsh outdoors that it will wilt and die. Follow? So God's people thrived and multiplied under the affliction that God allowed upon them. But then the persecution against God's people swelled into a death decree. And it is there, here that we are introduced to these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, who the Bible says feared the Lord. And because of this, when they were instructed to slay the Hebrew boys when they were born, and there were a lot of babies being born, amen? They refused in what was one of the first recorded acts of civil disobedience amongst God's people. The Bible says God blessed them for their faithfulness to him. For are we not instructed to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's? And so then an enraged Pharaoh, chief pontiff of the Egyptian religion, ordered that the Hebrew male babies be cast into the Nile River, which in essence was was nothing but a human sacrifice or offering to the God of the Nile. Yes, we find in their story, our story. For what began as a pure faith, a faith like that of Abraham in the early church of Acts, over time slipped into apostasy. Paul warned of this growing reality in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 3. Now, brethren, he writes, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, band our gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or letter as if it is from us as though the day of the Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. As you study the story of our church in Revelation 2 and 3, you read of this rapid descent that lingered for centuries. And so it was that the customs and practices of paganism crept into God's church. This is our history. Until the unique sign of the Sabbath rest among God's people was nearly lost. 
Yes, the Sabbath was nearly lost as man tried to connect and reach the hearts of the pagan world, you know, to collaborate with them. For as Taylor Bunch put it in his, in his book, they had so far departed from the faith of the apostles that they would rather offend God than their heathen neighbors. And so, just as prophecy stated, the length of time in which God's people would be in Egypt, that is 400 years of affliction, so prophecy states how long God's church would remain in spiritual darkness, that is 42 months, or time, times and a half a time, or 1260 years. And just as it was with Egypt, the persecution intensified as the Reformation began. And yes, lives were lost, but God preserved a people. Amen? And as the morning star with all its glorious light began to shine and appear, and through the prophecy of the 1260 years of darkness ending in 1798, it wasn't until roughly 30 years later that God began to raise up an Advent movement. It, it reminds me of Daniel 12 verse 11, which if you're not, we encourage you, come out on Tuesday nights. We're studying the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel 11 this coming week. But notice Daniel 12, 11. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination is set up, of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now, while this text invites a whole study in and of itself, allow me to simply remind you that the 1290 began in 508 and overlapped the 1260, bringing us to 1798. And how interesting that the text then says, but blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1335. For you see, this brings us right onto the eve of 1844. And the same time is found there in Revelation 10 of the eating of the little book. In other words, this was the time leading up to 1844 when man looking for the second coming of Christ was sorely disappointed when they realized that they had misinterpreted the prophecy. And while it led to a great disappointment, as we read in history and as we read in Revelation 10, they were to prophesy again to many nations, tribes, tongues, and people. Yes, you see, some 30 years after the end of the 1260 years, a man by the name of William Miller, along with many others, began to see the light of Daniel 8.14. And though they misunderstood the exact meaning of the text, it awakened in God's people a hope, an expectation of deliverance. It began a diligent search of the prophecies and led to a great Advent movement. Amen? I mean, you're a part of that, amen? Right? As God delivered his people from the persecution and affliction of those dark ages, we have been delivered as a people from the spiritual darkness of Egypt. The probation of the Antichrist was in a sense closed, closed sealing its ultimate fate where one day it will receive its end. And so it would receive a deadly wound for a while, but as the, as the prophecy tells us, it would be healed. And as Revelation 13 states, there would be another beast which would rise up out of the earth, which we understand to be a nation that rose out of a desolate land or wilderness. Yes, we have been wandering in the wilderness, if you will, waiting as God seeks to take us home to the promised land. And yes, Revelation 13 prophesies of a time to come when the people of God will face 
the wrath of a wounded power that has been healed. And yes, the persecution, according to Revelation 13, will increase so that no man may buy or sell save he who worships the beast. But as the beast and the false prophets of prophet false prophet of prophecy grow agitated and fearful of God's people like we see in Exodus chapter 1 it will be said that we are the cause for all the trouble they're facing and so it will be that like with Pharaoh of old church and state will unite as prophecy predicted and proclaiming a death decree upon God's people But, like those Hebrew midwives, we must render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. And civil disobedience will be required at that time as God's people stand for God's law instead of that of man's. You see, the problem is the wicked at the end of time will have failed to read the story carefully. For this story has been told again And again and again. The story was told when Adam and Eve were tested in the garden with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The story was told when Israel was tested during their time in Egypt leading up to the Exodus. The story was told when Israel was tested and afflicted during the Babylonian captivity. The story was again told in the life of Jesus when the dragon, as Revelation 12 depicts him, sought to devour the male child when he was born and Jesus was tested here on earth. The story was told during the dark ages when God's people were tested and afflicted for their truth. The story, yes, is being told again and again as each son and each daughter rehearses that story in their own story. As they seek to be delivered from the darkness of sin. It's nothing new. It has been rehearsed throughout the years. The onlooking universe has watched carefully. Man has reviewed its history carefully. So that in the end, Nahum 1.9 that promises that affliction will never rise up a second time can be true. Each time the story has been rehearsed, the the Sabbath rest has stood as a standard illustrating the faith of the saints, saints, illustrating the rest that we have in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. You see, there is a beauty in repetition. For repetition deepens impression and routine sets sets in, which allows us to react without too much thought. And thus the mystery of God is realized. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I like the way Desire of Ages puts it in page 668. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall but be but carrying out our own impulses. If that doesn't sound like a habit, I don't know what does. This is the kind of worship and obedience that God is after. In all the stories thus far, only Christ's story turned out perfectly. And God invites his story to become our story. And yes, there will be a people who in the last days, amidst the intense affliction, amidst the intense testing will come out refined by the fire, faithful 
unto God because they have embraced his story. In fact, our calling as a people is to herald the loud cry, which is, come out of her, my people. Come out and find rest. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.